0: Well, good morning, church. Great to be with you on another Lord's Day, another blessed day to worship the Lord. Let us just bow our heads in prayer as we start. Lord Jesus, we come before you this day. We thank you for what you're doing in our lives, Lord. We thank you for the gospel message of the forgiveness of sins through faith in you. I pray now, Lord, that the words of my mouth And the meditation of all our hearts here present would be acceptable in your sight. Lord, would you guide us, give us understanding. We know that you have a fresh word for us this day. Lead us, Lord. We commit this time to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. My friends, if you could get your Bibles back out to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. We're going to be looking through verse 2 to 16. If you don't have a Bible, there's a Bible in the seat in front of you, so open up to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, and we're going to be moving through verse by verse. So we're going to start now with verses 2 to 4. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 7, starting at verse 2. Paul says this, make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one, we have corrupted no one, We have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts, to die together and to live together. I am acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy." So in verse 2, my friends, we see St. Paul continue to defend the validity of his apostolic ministry, right? This defense is a theme that we have seen throughout our journey thus far in 2 Corinthians. And in verse 3, we see Paul's motives. He says, I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. So we see Paul's motives here as a true pastor, right? Paul cares deeply for the flock. He's acting with Christ-like love. He says, you are in our hearts. Remember that idea of the care of the soul of another, right? That highest form of love, the Christ-like sacrificial love. Well, it's on display in Paul's life. And this Christ-like love is rooted at the core of Paul's very being and his ministry. My friends, let us apply Paul's example to our lives as well. He says in verse three, to die together and to live together. So in this statement, we see Paul's heart and his life that models the life of the Savior. And we see the intimacy there between a pastor and his flock as they follow Jesus Christ. Christ, right? Through death and life. We're in this faith together, friends. At verse 4, Paul says, I am acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you. I'm filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I'm overflowing with joy. So in v- verse 4, Paul acts with boldness when communicating the truth, right? He's also proud of what God has done in the lives of of the Corinthian believers. That is clear. And at the end of verse 4, we see a couple themes that we have seen before in this letter, right? We see the theme of comfort as well as joy through affliction, which we have spoken about before. Comfort in that Paul is comforted by the godly repentance that has taken place in the Corinthian church, right? The work of God in the church's Life, And we'll start to see this as we unpack this passage. So we see comfort, and we also see joy through affliction, right? Paul says at the end of verse 4, I'm overflowing with joy, right? Even in all our affliction, I'm overflowing with joy. And so that deep-seated, eternal joy that can never be taken away from the believer even through earthly trials and affliction, that deep-seated joy is present in the Apostle Paul's life and in the true Christian's life as well. Let's keep moving here at verse 5 to 7. Paul says this, For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. So in verse 5, my friends, we can recall the narrative that Paul has brought us through If you recall what we learned back in chapter 2 onward, at one point, Paul had made a painful visit to the Corinthian church. So let's just recall this. He made a painful visit to the Corinthian church, and this visit that he made did not go well, right? It was painful. There was some serious opposition to Paul and his gospel ministry. And so after this painful visit, Paul wrote a severe letter, right? And this is a letter that we actually don't have. We don't have a copy of the severe letter that he wrote. And he sent this letter with Titus, that Titus would deliver this letter to the Corinthian church. And this severe letter called the church to repentance. And so Paul then went to Troas, where he experienced considerable anxiety which we see in chapter 2 verse 13 his spirit was not at rest because of his concern his pastoral concern for the corinthian church because he had not yet heard word from titus and so we see that paul was afflicted externally and internally he was not at rest as a pastor with deep care for his flock and then in verse 5 in chapter 7 here we see that Paul went on to Macedonia, still not at rest and afflicted at every turn. But then in verse 6, we see this. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. So we see that Paul was comforted by the coming of Titus. And this comfort, my friends, that Paul felt was fully God's work. It was God's doing, right? My friends, remember our God who comforts us, even amidst our affliction. Remember him. It is God who comforts the downcast, right? So Paul's affliction here resulted in this state of being that was cast down, and it is God who comforts him. So hear this today, friends. I don't know what you're going through, but Christ does. It is God who comforts The downcast even in our afflictions but even more than that God is a God who comforts and saves eternal comfort salvation through faith in Jesus Christ peace with God feel the comfort of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and remember friends that the Holy Spirit the comforter lives in you even now. So in verse 5 to 7, as we look at the immediate context, we see Paul comforted by the coming of Titus and in the news that the Corinthian church had received this severe letter well. And we'll see this as we unpack this passage. They had repented over their sins. And so in verse 7, we see that Paul hears of their true repentance, right? The church's longing mourning and zeal for Paul and for the gospel that he preached, right? We see that at the end of verse seven. And so Paul hears of this true repentance and thus is joyful, right? He rejoices still more at the news that the church has turned from their sin and turned to the Savior. And so even through Paul's strong rebuke in his severe letter, the church listened They were convicted over their sin. With broken and contrite hearts, they repented. They turned to Christ and thus turned back to Christ's minister, Paul, as their pastor. There was a restored relationship there. Let's move on to verse 8 to 10 as we get into the meat of this passage. Verse 8, For even if I made you grieve with my letter... I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret whereas worldly grief produces death. And so, my friends, in verse 8, it's quite clear that Paul, as a loving pastor, sometimes must cause sorrow to those that he cares for if they fall into sin, right? Sometimes the message is hard. Sometimes the truth stings, but it's still the truth. So we as the church have to make a decision, right? Do we feel conviction over our sin, right? That brokenness, the contrition, that godly sorrow. And do we repent, turning to the Savior, looking to him, walking towards him? Or when we feel this conviction over our sin, do we refuse to live under the Lordship of Christ? Maybe that looks like scrapping pages of sacred scripture to Conform to secular values, whatever that looks like, which will it be? Will we turn to the Savior and follow him on the narrow path that leads to life, or will we refuse to live under him and under his lordship, Jesus as Lord? Well, as we see in our passage, friends, the true Christian feels what's called godly grief, and this is contrasted with worldly grief, which we'll get into. Godly grief in the Greek, literally means grief according to the will of God, right? This godly grief, godly sorrow. And so the true Christian feels this godly grief and then turns to the Savior, right? Repenting of their sin, walking on the narrow path that leads to life. And so the direction of the true believer's life is christ word, as we've said before. So my friends, if you fall into sin, get back up, look to the Savior, walk towards him, put the sin to death by the Holy Spirit as you walk on the path of eternal life, which in itself is a free gift of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Let us remember that. So in verse 8, we see Paul's heart yet again as a pastor Paul is not trying to hurt anyone for his own gain, but Paul as a pastor will do what is necessary to lead the church to Christ, right? Verse eight, for even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. So we see Paul's heart here, right? He does not regret what he wrote in the severe letter because he wrote the truth, but we also see him say, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. And that's the key here. So do you see Paul's heart, how he feels for his flock? He says that he regrets it only for a little while in the sense that he saw that the letter caused them sorrow, right? He saw that the letter caused them pain. He, and Paul would never want them to feel unnecessary pain. So we see Paul's care here. He wrote the truth, though, and he didn't regret that, which you see at the start of verse 8. But he did see their sorrow, and he was saddened as a pastor in the short term to grieve the Corinthians. But he knew that he must do so for the sake of their souls. Remember, friends, Christ's love has taken root in Paul's life, right? Paul is operating from this place of Christ-like love, this care for the soul of another. And so he knows that he must do what he needs to do when he's caring for his flock's souls, right? Remember what true love is, that care for the soul of another. And we see this Christ-like love in Paul as he writes his severe letter, calling the Corinthians to repent, turning, Christ, that they would repent and turn to him. As you look at verse 9, St. John Chrysostom said this, commenting on this verse, he said, like a father who watches his son being operated on, Paul rejoices not for the pain being inflicted, but for the cure, which is the ultimate result, right? Verse 9, as it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. So, Paul, though saddened for a little while, knew that this kind of grief, this godly grief, this godly sorrow does not stay stagnant, right? It leads to repentance. This is godly grief, which you see at verse 9. And Paul rejoices then, not because the church is grieved by his severe rebuke, but he rejoices because they were grieved into repentance. They were grieved into repenting. They felt this godly grief. They were not merely sorrowful, right? They felt sorrow that led to the point of repentance. This sorrow had a trajectory, right? This sorrow was not like worldly sorrow or worldly grief at the end of verse 10, which we see produces death. But this godly grief, Right? This godly grief, this godly sorrow, pain and distress over sin, this type of sorrow does not leave you in despair. No, this sorrow leads you to the Savior. This grief is according to the will of God, and it's meant to bring you to repentance. That word repentance, that change of direction, right? That change of mind, that turning from your sin and turning to the Savior. That's what repentance is, and we'll unpack this as we continue to work through. When we repent like this, it leads to salvation, right? Look at verse 10. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, So this type of repentance leads to salvation because we're no longer walking on the wide road that leads to destruction, but instead we are walking with Christ on the narrow path that leads to eternity. In verse 10, godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. You see that there? So in Christ, my friends, there ultimately is no regret. Because our sin, guilt, and shame, all of our transgressions have been dealt with by Christ on our behalf on the cross. No regrets. And so for the world, my friends, the question is this. What do you do with your guilt? Right? What do you do with your guilt? Well, for the Christian, godly grief leads to repentance, leading to salvation, In Jesus Christ, through faith. Faith in the Savior who dealt with your guilt, right? In full. He dealt with it in full, and he offers you the forgiveness of sins, his perfect righteousness, and eternal life with him. No regrets. Through faith. Whereas worldly grief, my friends, produces death. We see that at the end of verse 10. Worldly grief is impenitent, right? It does not lead to repentance, okay? So worldly grief produces death because worldly grief leaves you with Satan as the accuser, but godly grief leads you to Christ the Savior. This kind of grief, the grief of the world, does not point to the Savior in the end. Instead, worldly grief ends in despair and destruction, The grief of the world generates this state of heart, which is increasingly settled in its hardness, right? There's no repentance, no salvation. It leads to death. Hell at the end of one's days, unless they turn to the Savior in repentance, and then there's no regrets, because all of our guilt, shame, and sin is covered. When we're united to him by faith, we're wearing his white robes, We have a better way, church, than worldly grief. Let us speak the truth, just like Paul. Even when it's tough. Even when there's sorrow, right? That we would ultimately point people to Jesus. That we would look to the Savior. And that we would implore others to look to the Savior as well. That they too would walk on the narrow path that leads to life. Let's look at verse 11 and 12. Verse 11, For we see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. So, in verse 11, my friends, we see that this godly grief, right, this brokenness over our sins for having offended God, this contrition, this godly grief has produced earnestness and eagerness in the Corinthians, right? They heard the truth. They felt godly sorrow. They repented quickly. They turned to Jesus eagerly. Because, my friends, this godly grief does not end in grief. It's not like worldly grief. This godly grief flows beyond the sorrow to repentance and regained joy, right? Restored joy in Jesus Christ. He says in verse 11, Paul says, what eagerness to clear yourselves!" Well, my friends, as we said, how does one clear himself of guilt? Only through faith in the Savior, who dealt with all of our guilt and shame. And so we see this eagerness in the Corinthians to get right with God, the fear of the Lord at work, true zeal in their hearts, that they would turn to Christ and all would be well with their souls. And so Paul hears that the Corinthian church has entered this fully restored relationship with Christ. And thus with his apostle Paul through true repentance. Paul as their pastor. And thus they are declared innocent. No longer guilty, but innocent through faith in Christ. Right? Pardoned and justified. Let us pause here, friends, as we reflect on the meaning of true repentance, as we have seen from verse 8 onward, this true repentance. I really love this quote from J.I. Packer. He says this, in the military, nobody doubts what's meant when the order is given, halt, about turn, quick march. It means that the soldiers are being told to turn their backs on the direction in which they were going and to start marching in the opposite direction from the way they were going before. And that's what repentance is. God says, turn around, face me, walk towards me. And so the true Christian, my friends, who has been saved by grace through faith, repenting of their sins and conversion, is now walking securely on the narrow path that leads to life. But even still, the true Christian must repent daily and continually, confessing their sins and adjusting their direction, right? Those incremental adjustments, that ongoing turning from sin by the Holy Spirit as we walk on the road of salvation, that repentant life, because sometimes even the Christian can get caught in the weeds along the journey, but they can rest assured That their Savior, in whom they have put their faith, will never let them stray from the narrow path ultimately. If they have truly repented initially, believed and been saved in Jesus Christ, Christ will bring them to eternity. This is the assurance we have in Christ. The end of the narrow path. The Savior bringing his sheep home. So in verse 11, we see what this godly grief looks like and the fruit that it produces, right? Earnestness, eagerness, etc. And so we see that godly grief, godly sorrow is anything but complacent, right? Rather, it ignites a swell of healthy responsiveness and genuine feeling. The Corinthians are thus now innocent in the matter. Think about that for a second. Innocent in the matter, as they have repented and turned to the Savior, who is truly the innocent one, the Lamb without blemish. My friends, let us also be united to him by faith and enjoy all of his benefits. In verse 12, let us look here. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of, of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. So we see in verse 12 that Paul speaks of why he wrote the severe letter, right? Not ultimately for the sake of a leader that had opposed Paul during his painful visit, right? Recall that painful visit that caused Paul to write the severe letter. Paul's severe letter was not primarily to engage either the offending party or the offended party in Corinth, which we see in chapter 2, but rather the purpose of Paul's difficult letter was to raise to the surface in unmistakable clarity the genuineness of the Corinthians' loyalty to Paul and thus to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we, we had seen the Corinthians firm discipline of the offender in chapter two, as well as their genuine repentance, right, which reinforced and manifested their obedience to Christ and to Paul as their pastor. And so Paul as a pastor gave them a hard message, the truth. Paul himself even felt the emotional weight of it, right? He was emotionally affected. He was not at rest at times until Titus came with the news that the church had turned. They had repented. He was affected emotionally as he gave them the message. Because Paul did not like to see his flock in sorrow without cause. And yet Paul knew that he had to speak this message, calling out sin in the flock's life and calling them to repentance That the flock would feel conviction over their sin, turn in repentance, earnestly seeking a restored relationship with Paul as their pastor through Christ. Of course, these are fitting themes for us this week, as R.D. preached a hard topic and a hard truth last week. And I can reassure you, friends, that he, like Paul, felt the weight of it, as he cares deeply for you as all of us do, that we would receive these hard messages well, right? Feel godly grief over our sin, repent where needed, turning toward Christ, as Artie charts a course for us that is Christ's word. In conversations with him this week, he expressed that he felt the weight, just like Paul in this situation, a pastor feeling the weight of calling out sin, and yet the truth must still be spoken with boldness, as already did. As he called it us to examine our sin and pointed us to the Savior. Right? That's what Paul's doing here. That our church, my friends, would always be a church that lives under the lordship of Jesus Christ. In all things. Even as we live in this secular world. And so, my friends, whether we're dealing with the pride movement, abortion, or other issues, where secular leaders are putting pressure on the church to accept and affirm, remember, we are not meant to march finally in Caesar's army. We are meant to march in Christ's army. Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. So let us turn to our Lord and walk towards him in repentance let us not be conformed to the world we must feel the heaviness of our sin feel that godly sorrow when we've offended God hating our sin but that's not the end friends the gospel of Jesus Christ lifts our burdens the sorrow leads to a savior Christ bore our iniquities on the cross and now through faith we are no longer weighed down but are free. This godly grief produced earnestness in us as we live our Christian lives before the face of God, which you see at the end of verse 12, in the sight of God. Let's look to verse 13 and 14 now. Therefore we are comforted and besides our own comfort we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And so in verse 13, my friends, we see again our common Second Corinthians theme of comfort. Knowing now that the Corinthians... Have experienced godly sorrow that leads to repentance, Paul is comforted as a pastor, right? In verse 13, we see that the personal contact of the Corinthians and Titus also encouraged Titus, encouraging him spiritually, but it sparked a noticeable change in him. And so, having touched on the Corinthians' redemptive sorrow and true reconciliation that has taken place through their repentance, paul continues to express his joy right and his joy over their embrace of titus as you see in verse 13 to 14 paul has joy in in his comfort over the corinthians but his deepest joy here is found in titus's joy right the joy of another let us also rejoice in another's joy as we live and die together as the church of christ look at verse 14 Paul had boasted to Titus that the Corinthians were truly a work of the Holy Spirit and their response showed that he was correct. In verse 14, Paul reiterates a point that he has sought to drive home in the early chapters of the letter, that as an apostle, as a pastor, and as a true Christian, his speech has been sincere, full of integrity, and true. He has spoken the truth always. Let us follow Paul's example as he follows Christ. And now with verse 15 to 16. And his affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. So in verse 15, we see the Corinthians' obedience, right? And how they received Titus along with Paul's severe letter that called them to repentance. And we see their response here. Fear and trembling, right? Fear and trembling. The utter seriousness and wholehearted sincerity, mindful of eternal realities that are at stake. Fear and trembling. This was Paul's description of the Corinthians' response to God's call to obedience, right? Godly grief, repentance, Salvation without regret, and obedient faith in Jesus Christ. So the Holy Spirit had clearly been at work in the hearts of the Corinthians, convicting them over their sin, leading them to repentance, and living this life of obedient faith. Obedience to Christ as Lord, right? Living under the Lordship of Christ, marching in Jesus' army. As Paul has heard of the Corinthians' obedience and their renewed spiritual health, He now assures them of his full confidence in them. Look at verse 16. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. Why does Paul have this confidence? Well, it's because Paul sees the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. God is at work and thus Paul has complete confidence. True confidence in Christ who is working in the life of his church. So Paul has this confidence that the Corinthians as a body are truly believers. Evidenced by their godly grief and repentance that leads to salvation and their obedience in Jesus Christ. That the Corinthian church is walking on the narrow path that leads to life and Paul rejoices. Let us remember this message, church, that we too would be quick to repent when we feel conviction over our sin, as we turn to the Savior in all things, that our joy would be restored in Christ as we turn to him. And I wanted to read Psalm 51, if you could turn there with me, as this is one of the best examples in Scripture of godly grief and repentance. Psalm 51 says this, Have mercy on me, O God, And my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Let us hear those words. A godly grief, my friends, a godly sorrow, that we would turn from our sin daily as we look to the Savior, living a life of repentance. Hating our sin, putting it to death by the Spirit, and pursuing holiness in Christ as we pursue Christ as the Holy One. Let us strive to obey His commandments, living a life of obedience as He leads us on the path of salvation, as we are secure in His loving arms through faith in Him, that we would believe in Him and be saved. So let us rejoice we know, friends, that godly grief leads to restored joy in Jesus Christ. Knowing that Christ is at work in his church, let us have complete confidence in what Christ is doing within us. Confidence, like Paul, that God will finish the good work that he started in us as he shepherds his flock, as Christ brings us to eternity. Turn, trust, and follow the Savior. Let us do that this day. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you. We thank you for the gift of repentance, Lord. When we feel convicted over our sin and our wrongdoing, Lord, we know that it doesn't end there, but it leads to repentance, to turning to you, Lord, facing you, walking towards you as you guide us securely to eternal life when we have true faith in you, Lord. We thank you for the gospel and the forgiveness of sins and that we have no regrets in Christ. All our guilt, shame, and sin is covered and dealt with. Thank you for the cross. Convict us over our sin, that we continually put sin to death as we walk this Christian life, as you bring us to eternity. Help us to continually live under the lordship of Christ each and every day as we live in this world. Thank you, Lord. We lift this time up to you now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.